0: Tim was a businessman, and his wife, Sarah, was alongside him every step of the way. And She didn't actually work with him, but she was his greatest supporter, his true leader, his confidant, his encourager, and at key moments when he faced crossroads in his career, he would turn to her for advice and counsel, and she gave him great, great wisdom. She truly was a partner with him in his career. Well, after 25 years of hard work, Tim finally arrives. At this point, he's the owner of his own business. He's at the pinnacle of success. He pulls down a significant six-figure income, and life is good. And he is feeling proud. So Tim and Sarah decide to reward themselves with a major vacation. They decide they're going to take a road trip and go visit some of the national parks. And so they buy a beautiful Mercedes-Benz sedan, and they head off on this road trip. Well, along the way, they happen to pass by the town where Sarah grew up, and she's not been back in many years. So Tim pulls in to get gas. He parks in the gas station, figures after they're done they can drive around and see the city. And he goes in to buy a cup of coffee, and while he's in there, Sarah strikes up a conversation with the gas station attendant. And when he comes out, they are in a deep conversation because it turns out that as a young teenage girl, Sarah and this gas station attendant had been boyfriend and girlfriend. They'd had quite a relationship. And as high schoolers often do, they'd actually even talked about marriage briefly before Sarah left this little town to go off to the big city and to make her way. Well, they talk for a few minutes, and Sarah introduces Tim to her ex-boyfriend, and they chat amiably. They get in the car, and then they drive off on their road trip, and they're both very silent as they head down the highway for several minutes, and then Tim says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking how lucky it is that you married me. Because if you hadn't married me, a successful businessman, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant. Sarah says, no, actually that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking it's lucky you married me because otherwise you'd be a gas station attendant and he'd be the successful businessman. Now, that's kind of a humorous little story, but that actually wasn't a very healthy conversation between a husband and wife, was it? They didn't build each other up, they just tore each other down. And what Tim said was hurtful to Sarah, and it was full of pride. And Sarah's response, even though it might be understandable, was hurtful to Tim and also full of pride. And it's fascinating to me how often in just these little moments of life, pride rears its head. And why does that happen? It happens because we want to appear strong and successful. We want to show that we have our act together, and we want to show that we are in control. And yet when we want to demonstrate those things and we do it in a prideful way, oh, pride is so destructive. Prideful attitudes and actions and comments never build up. They always tear down. And I believe that pride is a sign of our own self-inflicted brokenness. Because pride is not good for us. And it's not good for those who are on the receiving end. Thankfully, our loving God wants to rescue us from that condition. He wants to uproot the pride that might be deeply planted in your life and in mine so that we can learn to embrace and live with some humility. And yet, it's not always easy for us to let this happen. And that's because our pride is always pushing us to show just how strong and together we are while humility reminds us how weak we are. And I believe the reality is this. We only can truly be strong when we admit our weaknesses and then we lean on God's strength. Now that's a lesson that the Apostle Paul learned early in his ministry and it's a lesson that God wants all believers to understand and so the Holy Spirit prompts Paul to write about pride and humility in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And when he starts off in verse 24 he begins by listing some incredibly humbling hardships. Let's take a look. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Just think about that for a minute. Five times lashed, 39 times each. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and day I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, meaning the Jews, Danger from Gentiles, the non-Jews. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. That's people in the church who aren't true to the faith. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And listen to this phrase, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, if you think about what we just read, this is so unusual. Do you and I ever brag like this? No, if we brag, we're going to talk about all our successes. Paul talks about experiences that demonstrate his weakness. He highlights those times when he's not in control. Those times when he is entirely dependent on God and other people. We need to ask why he's doing it, and he's doing it because the Corinthian church to whom he's writing has a specific huge problem with pride. There's a number of influential people in that congregation who love to promote themselves. And so they brag about their spiritual abilities, and they boast about their spiritual accomplishments, and they love to tell people all the things they know about Scripture. And in particular, they love to talk about all the visions they've had from God. Their goal is not really to exalt God, but to exalt themselves. And God doesn't want to let that problem fester in Corinth because pride can destroy a church. And so what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit is prompting Paul to fight fire with fire. Since these church leaders have created a culture of boasting, Paul boasts right along with them. However, by boasting about his weaknesses, he shifts the focus from himself to Jesus. And as we will see as this passage unfolds, it's going to allow Paul to explain that our human weakness is what enables God's strength and God's power to flourish in our lives. You see, we can let God mend us by replacing our self-centered With godly humility. By the way, we need to realize it would be extremely easy for Paul to outdo these braggarts in Corinth by bragging about his own successes. He could give example after example of what God has done through him. And to cite just one, he could say, you know, I went to the city of Thessalonica where no one had ever heard about Jesus. And I taught people the truth of God. They responded. Scores of people were baptized. And it wasn't long before we had a thriving church. Oh, look what God did through me. And that would be true but it would put Paul at the center of the story instead of Jesus. And so instead of bragging about the positive responses to his preaching, Paul talks about the negative responses of the Jewish and Roman authorities, as we just read. He was whipped multiple times, he was beaten with rods multiple times, and once he even was stoned and left for dead. Paul's back would have been a mass of scars from all the undeserved punishment he received simply for telling people about Jesus. And in addition to harsh responses from the religious and civil authorities, Paul faced hardship in his travels. He was shipwrecked and hungry and often poorly clothed. And because he had the heart of a pastor, He constantly worried about the spiritual welfare of the believers in these various churches that God had entrusted to his care. The bottom line is that ministry was not easy for Paul. His life was marked by physical, emotional, and spiritual toil. And because he wasn't Superman, he couldn't solve every problem by himself. And he had to learn to humbly rely on God and on others. And that's not always easy for any of us to do because we like to be in control. And, guys, this can be particularly hard for us as men. Think about how we often grow up. We often grow up daydreaming about being heroes and performing heroic feats and conquering hardships in phenomenal heroic ways. And yet, how did this passage just end? It ended with Paul escaping from the city of Damascus by being lowered in a basket from a window in the city wall. And that's not a very heroic way to escape, is it? In that moment, Paul was helpless, and he was dependent. It was humbling. Just like everything else Paul wrote here. Now, it's common in our modern culture for people sometimes to talk about their problems, like Paul's doing, in order to play the victim card. In order for people to go, oh, we're so sorry for you. In order for the person complaining to say, oh, woe is me. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is pushing back against the Corinthian braggarts. And he's using their own technique to demonstrate that the way of Jesus is the way of humility. And one key tactic, as I mentioned, one key tactic of these boasting Corinthians is to proclaim that they've had supernatural visions from God. And then the next part of his his passage here, Paul's going to address that point head on, because he wants us to understand that God doesn't do supernatural things in the lives of his children so we can brag about them. God does those things to bless us, and the proper response is humility. Let's continue on. I must go on boasting. On behalf of this man I will boast, but not on my own behalf. Excuse me, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, listen to this, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so, as I said, these prideful people in Corinth are are claiming, oh, I'm way more spiritual than you are because I've had this incredible vision from God. And Paul responds by now describing his own vision. And initially, it doesn't sound like he's talking about himself. He says, oh, I know a man. But by the time he gets to the end, we know he's actually talking about himself. And he employs that tactic so that in describing the event, people will not focus on him, but on the event, because this is an incredibly unusual event. And to help us understand it, we need to realize in that day, people described the sky as the first heaven. They described the spiritual realm of Satan as the second heaven. And they described the realm of God as the third heaven. So when Paul says he was taken into the third heaven, into paradise, he's saying, I was in the presence of God. And that experience was so wild and weird and wonderful that Paul doesn't fully understand it. He can't figure out if he physically was taken to heaven for a brief minute or or if he had some kind of of out-of-the-body experience. He doesn't know. He just knows that somehow, some way, he was in the presence of God. And he heard and saw things so profound that he can't even have the words to talk about them. And in fact, he says, I'm really not even supposed to talk about them. And yet he is talking about them, and we'll find out why in just a minute. But as Paul recounts this unique experience, we need to remember that he introduced it in verse 1 by stating, there's little to be gained from this kind of boasting, and he's right. What grounds does anyone really have to boast when they participated in an event which they did not cause, which they had no power to create, and over which they had no control? You really can't boast about something like that. And yet, oh, are we so tempted to do so. That's what Paul's critics in the church are doing with their visions. If those people were alive today, they are the kind of people that would post pictures about their experience on Facebook. And they'd, they'd send out tweets on Twitter. They'd shoot a YouTube video to tell their story. Or they'd write a book or get themselves on a TV talk show. And I think this is so tragic. And yet it happens so often. God provides someone with a powerful and unusual blessing. And what do they do? They transform it into a tool of self-promotion. Look at me. I'm special. But that's not Paul's approach. Did you catch the fact... That even as he relates the story of this incredible heavenly vision, he notes that it took place 14 years earlier. Paul's experience is nearly a decade and a half old, yet, this is the first time the Corinthians ever have heard about it. We don't find Paul mentioning this anywhere else in any of his writings. When Paul's companions refer to him, they don't call him, oh, Paul the apostle who was caught up to heaven and spent time with God. You see, this story is not widely known. And in fact, it's possible that Paul never told it to anyone before now. And he only mentions it here to make a point. This story, this vision, is not a cause for pride, it's a cause for humility. Humility that God would choose to bless his life with such an amazing experience. Humility that God would display his power in Paul's life in such an incredible way. Humility always is the proper response to the work of God. God himself makes that clear by what happens next. Because if Paul was even remotely tempted to be prideful about this, God was prepared to keep him humble. Look what Paul writes next. So to keep me from becoming conceited, there it is, the problem of pride, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And here's what God said to Paul. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong." Now now let's think for a minute about who Paul is. Paul has been called by God to be a missionary to the world. He travels widely to tell people about Jesus and, as we've seen, he endures great difficulties and even suffering to fulfill his, his ministry. He's paying a huge price for serving God. So it seems to me that Paul is the kind of person who could say, you know, I really do deserve good things from God. I really do deserve God to make my life less problematic and less hard. But the reality is that Paul doesn't deserve anything from God. None of us do. God does not give us what we think we deserve. He doesn't give us what we want, he gives us what we need. And what Paul needs in this moment is a reminder to be humble, particularly after God allows him to experience a taste of heaven. Paul needs a reminder of his own human weakness, and God gives it to him in the form of this metaphorical thorn in the flesh. Paul doesn't say what that thorn is, but he views it as something from Satan. So it must be pretty intense. And it's natural for us to wonder, well, what could this thorn be? Some Christians believe it's an ongoing physical ailment, and some believe that it's the persecutions that Paul experienced. Others believe it's some kind of intense, sinful that Paul struggles to subdue, such as sexual temptation. As I think about that, here's what occurs to me. Physical ailments certainly are annoying, but I'm not sure we can classify them as the evil work of Satan because physical problems are just part of life. They just are. But stirring up opposition to Paul's ministry, oh, that's something Satan would love to do. Maybe that's what's going on here. And we also know that Satan sometimes likes to bring down spiritual leaders through sexual immorality. That's a thorn that he loves to dig into our flesh. Yet these are all just speculations. We don't know what Paul's thorn is and it doesn't matter what it is or he would have told us. What matters is how he responds. And he initially responds by repeatedly asking God to take it away because it's tormenting him. And I don't imagine those are like calm prayers. Oh Lord, please take away the thorn. <laughs> if I was Paul, I'd be like, God I'm in pain, I'm in torment, I'm in agony, would you please free me from this problem? but he doesn't get any relief. And isn't it interesting how we respond when God answers like that? Because what we usually say is, well, God didn't answer my prayer. (laughs) But that's incorrect. Paul did get an answer and the answer was no. Sometimes the answer we want is not the answer we need. And sometimes the best answer from God is an act of tough love that dampens our pride and promotes humility and deepens our faith. So when God says no, and Paul, to his credit, is able to see the ongoing presence of this thorn in a new light. And he's able to see value in it, even though the torment of this thorn may have lasted for 14 years, ever since he had his heavenly vision. This thorn reminds Paul that the most important thing is to receive God's grace. Which is God's unearned love and unearned favor. And in this case, God's grace means you don't deserve my power, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway. You don't need to be strong all all on your own, you just need to rely on me. That's my grace for you when you're weak. So, this thorn reminds Paul that he's not a flawless spiritual giant. And it reminds him to live with some humility. And here's what's really interesting. Because of that metaphorical thorn, Paul's broken and his life's harder because of it. And yet the thorn also breaks his tendency toward pride. It's almost ironic, the very thing that breaks him also helps to mend him and draw him closer to God. This thorn helps Paul rely on the strength of Jesus instead of on himself. And so the thorn in Paul's response to it reveals that living by faith sometimes involves a paradox. And in this case, we only can be strong when we admit our weakness because that's when we see God's power at work in our lives. And that's what God taught Paul. Paul. That's what Paul is prompted by the Spirit to share through Scripture. Because that's what God wants for every one of his children. And so, Paul's experiences here, I think they challenge us to consider our own struggles with pride. And even though it's not easy, I think we each need to consider how God might want to break our pride or help us harness our pride and mend us in such a way that it promotes greater humility. I'll tell you what my thorn is. My thorn is Saturday nights. Ever since I started preaching I've had a horrendous time getting a good night's sleep on Saturday nights. I'm restless. I feel like I'm attacked by distracting, disturbing, annoying dreams. Which means when I get up on Sunday morning, I'm not at 100%. I'm not at my best. And I have been praying for years. God, would you take that away? And almost every week, God says, nope. And you know what that does? It means when I come to preach, I can't get through the morning without God's strength. Because I'm not at 100%. It keeps me humble and reminds me, I can't do this on my own. And every Sunday morning I say, God, I'm weak. Would you give me your strength so I can do faithfully what you've asked me to do? Now, Paul's story and my story involve people in ministry. But what might what might a thorn look like in the life of someone who's not in ministry? I'm reminded of a friend of mine named Michael. Michael was a wonderful, devoted follower of Christ, but but Mike struggled with explosive anger. And his anger was driven by pride because Mike was one of those guys that always needed to win and anger permeated his life. His passion was playing baseball and he played on a city league ball team and at least once every game he would have a major meltdown if the umpire made a call that he didn't like. When he was in meetings at work he periodically would explode when others didn't agree with him. And his anger periodically was directed toward his family. Two men in his church decided to follow the advice of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Powerful verse, I wish we all would learn. If someone is caught in a sin, restore them gently. So these two men said, We need to lovingly, gently help our brother. So they talked with Michael about his anger and his pride. And thankfully, because of their approach, he was willing to listen and he was able to acknowledge his weakness. And then he prayed for the Holy Spirit to give him the self control that he lacked. Did you know we can pray like that? Another passage in Galatians, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where we learn about nine character qualities called the fruit of the Spirit. And one of those qualities is the quality of self control. So when you and I lack self-control in any area of life, the Holy Spirit wants to give it to us. Because when we're weak, and we admit our weaknesses, and we call on God, oh, that's when He can be strong on our behalf. over the next year, Michael slowly and steadily changed as he daily began to confess his weakness, and he relied on the power of God for self-control. And his pride began to dissipate. That, that driving need to win at all costs began to fade away, and then his anger began to fade. And these things were replaced by a spirit of grateful humility for the grace and goodness of Jesus. Michael was smart enough to realize that, oh, this pride and anger, they're always lurking just beneath the surface. So I can't take anything for granted, and every day I need to keep praying and say, God, I'm weak. May your spirit help me to be strong. So fast forward about five years. Michael's city league team is playing for the championship and it's a close game and the lead changes hands several times and as you might imagine, emotions are high but Michael stays calm. And the game comes down to the final play and the call goes against Michael's team and they lose and and he reacts with great disappointment because he's still a very passionate ball player. He's just stopped being an angry, prideful ball player because Jesus changed him. So after the game, he's walking to his car, and a guy from the other team approaches him and says, Mike, I've been playing against you for years, and there's always one thing I could count on. In every game at some time, you'd have a meltdown. And I never once saw you do that throughout this entire season. And you didn't do it tonight. What changed? Now, is that a moment to respond with pride and say, look how I've improved myself. (laughs) No, it's a time to humbly point to the power of God. And so Michael says, let me tell you how Jesus changed me. And they had a wonderful spiritual conversation. Michael was broken and mended. Because he laid aside his pride and he accepted his weakness and he embraced the power of God. The Apostle Paul, as we see here this morning, he was broken and mended because he laid aside his pride and he accepted his weakness and he embraced the power of God. So here's what I find myself wondering. Where might pride be showing up in your life? Or perhaps threatening to show up in your life? And how might God want to graciously unleash his power in your life in order to mend you so you can live a life of gracious humility and experience the very best that God has for you? Please ponder that. Pray about that and see what the holy spirit might reveal to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am just so thankful here for the incredible honesty of the apostle Paul. It's a wonderful thing that he doesn't try to impress us with his perfection, but instead he shares honestly about his weakness. And I pray that we'd learn from his example. Father, through the power of the holy spirit, Please help us see what thorns might exist in our own lives so we can admit our weakness, so we can lean on your strength, so we can let go of self-centered pride, and so we can become the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.